Hi, I'm Isabeau. I'm Morgan. And this is Womans, a podcast about romance novels, about lady astronomers, about intergalactic planets, <laughs> about embroidery. It's about power dynamics in the home and in the collective. Mm. It's about how one overcomes a broken heart. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are discussing The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by Olivia Waite. Woo! Much anticipated release. Indeed. It was the big romance book read of September. I know. <laughs> Three months late and a dollar short. You the know Isabel what? and Morgan Way. 2019's Raphael. <laughs> We got to it. What did you guys think when you did your big romance read? Did you hear anything? What was the scuttlebutt? That's one of the things that's really hard about the romance industry where like there's a lot of excitement about a release and then the book is released and it either lands with a thud or it lands very softly. And like there was a ton of anticipatory chatter about this particular text. It was the big book read, but then like didn't have a long chat period. And I think that's one of the interesting things about romance where it's like if you don't break through the murmur, it can be really hard because romance turns over so quickly. Yeah. So I can read the back of the book. That would be great. As Lucy Mulkenny. Is that how you say it? That's Mulca- how I said it. My Mulkenny. Mulca- As Lucy watches her ex-lover's sham of a wedding, she wishes herself anywhere else. It isn't until she finds a letter from the Countess of Moth looking for someone to translate a groundbreaking French astronomy text that she knows where to go. Showing up at a Countess's London home, she hopes to find a challenge, not a woman who takes her breath away. Catherine St. Day looks forward to a quiet widowhood once her late husband's scientific legacy is fulfilled. She expected to hand off the translation and wash her hands of the project. Instead, she's intrigued by the young woman who turns up at her door, begging to be allowed to do the work, and she agrees to let Lucy stay. But as Catherine finds herself longing for Lucy, everything she believes about herself and her life is tested. While Lucy spends her days interpreting the complicated French text, she spends her nights falling in love with the alluring Catherine. But sabotage and old wounds threaten to sever the threads that bind them. Can Lucy and Catherine find the strength to stay together, or are they doomed to be star-crossed lovers? What's interesting is that that final paragraph of the description almost makes it seem like external forces are working against Mm -hmm. Lucy and Catherine but really whenever they go through a breakup spoiler alert it's very internal and it has to do with the power imbalance within the relationship inherent Mm -hmm. within the relationship that both of them are concerned about in different ways where do you want to dive in first I think it's important to note that this is a same sex relationship and I think that's one of the reasons it was chosen as the big romance read and it's a same sex relationship between two women which is actually a little bit harder to find in romance than male same sex relationships Mm-hmm. And like one of the beautiful things about same-sex relationships, and this has been like, I'm not the only person to say this. This has been written about a lot. Like, why do women prefer to watch same-sex porn? Or why do women have, you know, fantasies about same-sex relationships, mm-hmm. even when they themselves identify as heterosexual? And it's because of power imbalance. Whenever you're a woman who's in a relationship with a man, there is always going to be a societal power imbalance that cannot be undone. Physiological, people point out to a certain extent, but I think what's really 
really going on is societal imbalance. And so I was looking forward to reading something that imagines a love story, a historical love story, no less, without the kind of power imbalance that is inherent and exacerbated in our historical romances. Instead, I found that the book goes through pains to recreate a power imbalance within the relationship so that Lucy is still kind of dependent on Catherine. And as soon as I noted this, Lucy's brother, Stephen, comes and points it out to her explicitly. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is a relationship of a patron. It's never going to be anything other than a power move on Catherine's part. And she can take everything away from you. She holds all the strings, all the pieces. And we do see it. Catherine gets jealous and almost prevents Lucy from seeking closure with her past lover. Anyways, that was one of the things that I thought was interesting. Yeah. And the fact that the book decided to recreate this power imbalance, not only through Catherine's immense wealth, but also through Catherine's age and experience. And one of the ways that the book tried to ameliorate that initial imbalance is that Catherine has had these same-sex desires all her life and has never really had an opportunity to realize or capitalize on them. So instead of having like an older, more mature seductress, you had a really nice sort of move between Lucy and Catherine where Lucy knows more because she's basically in the circles where she's been safe enough to be out. She's been living more authentically in her sexuality than Catherine has. I thought that was an interesting way to try to ameliorate part of the power imbalance. And then especially that scene where Stephen shows up and talks about the relationship between patron and artist or patron and scientist or patron and whoever. It was really clear that like Stephen had been harmed and that he was worried about Lucy being harmed. And then the book tries uh, Deus Machina. And I don't know if I could believe it at that time because it made such work of the imbalance coming up where it's like your book has sold this many copies and even though I'm a countess now we're more equal because your book is a success and I was like mm, landed gentry's different than being like a well-renowned author yeah it's true and in fact the countess lives without a great deal of the same gender repression like her title was hers to inherit and in hers to pass on she actually considers giving it to Lucy in her death you know which is a weird mommy daughter thing which totally do you know what's really interesting yeah. not to keep talking about pornography but when we were youngsters Isabel one of the top searches on Pornhub was MILF mm -hmm. mom I'd like to fuck but mm -hmm. it's not like your mom and mm -hmm. now it's all incest adjacent yeah. stuff it happened really quick like Stacy's mom as a song and then like pretty much the next summer it's like incest I thought it was after Game of Thrones when that taboo became so like in the zeitgeist in the zeitgeist yeah, yeah. but I'm sure it was bubbling the whole time. It's so weird. You know, sometimes taboos, they all exist for a reason, mm -hmm. but the incest taboo exists for like a very real physiological reason. Yeah, like a homophilia reason. Yeah, like a sickness. It wasn't a thing until people saw how fucked up it could be in the gentry. Yeah, taking down entire empires because the air was enfeebled by genetics. Yeah. So anyways, weird and interesting. Weird dynamic. Weird and interesting dynamic. But I think whenever she talks about potentially passing on her title to this woman she's sleeping with, a familial line through a lover, it's kind of like, wow, it's even like here. Yeah. <laughs> so what do we say about The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics? Maybe it would help if we like moved between heroin and heroin. Okay. There are a couple of things Kick that it I want to start with Lucy, if that's okay. okay. Yeah. So Lucy is 
is 19. She's just out of school and she's fresh off a heartbreak. Her schoolmate, Pris, who she was in a five-year-long relationship with, has just gotten married to a very nice man. In Lucy's heartbreak, she can't stay in her little village just outside of Lyme. And so she makes the decision to talk to Lady Moth and give herself a job. So Lucy's pugnacious. She's ambitious, but only under duress. She's not interested necessarily in being famous. She's interested in keeping doing what she's doing. And I think that's always really interesting to me. And then this book has a lot to talk about genius. And I thought the way that this book talked about genius was really right in a lot of ways because Lady Moth has ostensibly been married to not a genius, but a very smart man who was born either too early or too late is how George describes himself. And he goes on all of these trips because he has all this money to do all this stuff. He wants to be famous. He wants to be famous. This book has this really nice discussion about how ambition and true genius make these maneuvers that are essentially selfish and that Catherine has had to bear the burden of supporting a genius. And I think like that's one of the things where like I just watched a version of Hound of the Baskervilles and it's like Sherlock Holmes is a total asshole and Watson just loves him. And like Watson is a smart person in the same way that like Catherine is smart and like they're brilliant in their own right, but they're with people who are actually utilizing their quote unquote genius as an excuse to be douches. Part of Catherine's recuperation after her husband has died is like learning how in which she was burdened and harmed by George's ambition and quote unquote genius, which I thought was interesting, which is like we do put people who are innately good at things on pedestals in ways that like allow them to maybe harm others. I want to hit on a couple of things. I don't know if this is different from what you were saying, but I think the book actually thinks George is smart, but he's not a genius. Right. And his accolades are unearned due in large part to his sex and his social status. Right. And so Lucy is likewise has been in a relationship with a genius that she has had to subjugate herself with her father, who was a very big deal astronomer, very well respected. Later in his life, he wanted to focus more on ideas rather Mm -hmm. than execution. And so Lucy became very, very good at math because she had to do all of the equations for him. And she had an innate understanding and a way of looking at the world that the book does ascribe as genius. Lucy has likewise been in a similar relationship where she had to ameliorate herself or subjugate herself or, you know, her own thinking was irrelevant. And she doesn't decide that she's going to take on this idea of expanding on her trips until she meets Catherine and she's inspired to write something that Catherine can understand. The book does acknowledge Catherine as like an artistic genius, right? Mm -hmm. She's really good at embroidery and design and illustration in a way that Stephen is not, right? Mm -hmm. So we have our foils to our different categories of genius. But Mm -hmm. the thing that frustrates me is that it still creates a dichotomy. Mm -hmm. It's like you can either be like really good at math and science or really good at art. And the idea that like girls can do both, I feel is missed opportunity to consider the fact that women or any person who is non-traditionally in a place of power is able to reimagine a narrative of how things work. Whereas this book still kind of reinforces that dichotomous understanding. Whereas I feel like women, because you're not supposed to be a genius of any kind, you can imagine yourself a genius of every kind and thus create something new. There's also just a missed opportunity with Catherine's genius in her art and the way that she used color in her embroidery, where it's 
like embroidery is incredibly math heavy. Like you don't become good at embroidery without knowing how to be good at math and like yeah. practical math. Yeah. And that's never explored or expanded upon or ever. It's a just point like, of connection between the women. Totally. And so like what a missed opportunity to talk about like how art and science truly interweave and like what an easy one. She's so good at embroidery. That also means that she's really good at counting. It also means that she's really patient, like all these other things. There's this wonderful part of the book where she's like, yes, seeming is tedious, but seeming gets you to the part where you want to go. And it's like, yeah, there are math equations that are tedious that you have to continue to do to get to the math that you want to do. And I thought that was like a really good discussion of like the secret part of genius where a lot of it is just tedious. It's like just doing the work. And I thought this book was good about that. But like, yeah, this dichotomous binary of how art and science relate to one another. And never the twain shall meet. Right. They're both like their own separate special thing, but that's not really it. And that's what bums me out is that these women are imagining themselves outside of assigned roles, right? They're in a same-sex relationship. She is a second-generation countess without a count. And yet. (laughs) And yet. They're still like, I guess we'll just forever be two different kinds of brilliant. Living together. Yeah. I'm curious as to why this book was set during the Napoleonic era. So it's before the Victorian era. It's like just post-Austin. So it's like 18... It's post-Napoleonic. No, because the Orléans comes over and she talks about how she broke her ankle and that the emperor wasn't good for everything. But he's out of power now. Is he? Yeah, she says she survived the Napoleonic era. So that's gone and... I don't think so. Show you. Lucy had a smile. The Marquise had grown up in the shadow of Voltaire and survived both the revolution and Napoleon's empire. She hasn't walked right since the emperor. We're immediately post-Napoleonic. Right. And so what's on the horizon for England is an even more repressive moment than they're in. Which is strange because they're talking about how it's already an even more repressive right. moment. Which is why I'm curious is like, why not set it in the Georgian era where people were talking about same-sex relationships openly in England, like right before the French Revolution? Like Catherine's erstwhile godmother, Mrs. Kelmarsh or Lady Kelmarsh talks about how open it used to be and like how good it was. And I'm like, well, why not just set it with Lady Kelmarsh? Especially because the problems of oppression outside of Pris's very individualistic family situation doesn't really come up. Like everyone around them knows that they're in a same sex relationship. Nobody says anything. And there's also this thing where like she's like, I hope my maid doesn't reveal my secret. It's like, of course she won't. She'll be put out. She won't be able to get another job if she does that. Right. There is like a real slippage as far as, you know, creating a very specific setting and then not delivering on any of the promises of that setting or kind of working within it, which is, I understand like a historical romance doesn't have to be totally historically accurate, Mm -hmm. but it seems like if you go through all the trouble of putting it post Napoleon, Mm -hmm. like wouldn't you use that? Wouldn't that be like the paint box that you wanted to color with? Right. So then part of me feels like the project of this book is to write romance set in the Regency period, which is one of the most profitable historical periods to set a romance in. Oh, Mm -hmm. interesting theory. So then that project, while an interesting one and a good one, straight up, I was excited to read a Regency romance with two ladies, I think did a disservice to the characters on the page. So I think this actually gets us into our 
regularly scheduled programming. What is the weirdest part of this book for you? Oh my God, I have so many weirdest parts. My weirdest part? How about the one that works within what we were just talking about? Okay, there's this moment where Catherine's coming into her own because Lucy is continuing to like boost her up and she notices that her very kind butler's youngest daughter is now a maid in the house and that she's incredibly good at stitching. And then she goes to the housekeeper and she's like, hey, we need to get her in training to be a lady's maid. And the housekeeper is like, we have other maids who are more experienced and also more ready for a promotion. Like this girl's 15. Like, let's not do that. It'll hurt workplace morale. It'll hurt workplace morale. I'd rather not. And she's like, I'm the lady of the house. She's got a God given talent. She shouldn't have to wait for anybody's rules. And like, this is a moment where like Catherine's like probably over identifying. Yeah. And the book is really clear about that. And then the maid is promoted and workplace morale suffers. And then the fix to this is Lucy being like, oh, you're good at stitching, but you also really like drawing. Let's go get you to do something else. Gets her a job at the engravers. Yeah. Why is that the weirdest part? Because for a book that's really interested in women reclaiming space and women coming into their own in lots of different ways and like women listening to each other like this was a massive misstep and I know it was purposeful and I know like that was part of the moves that yeah. like this book intended to make but it felt weird that Catherine would use her moment to solicit advice from her housekeeper and then not take it where it's like bosses do that all the time I know but like Catherine was supposed to be a different kind of boss question mark I don't know the whole thing was just like I don't know what this interlude is like I understand what this interlude is trying to tell me but I'm not there with it I get that Catherine is definitely like the hero right because the hero is the one with air quote flaws and Lucy is the heroine and so I think it was doing that work of positioning Catherine as like the person in power who has to be like cared for by her lesser lover I think is what it was doing I totally get why that's weird like it goes back to my other thing like why can't we just have like an egalitarian relationship or like if you've been a countess without a count for this long and Lee, you lived as a count like your mother as a countess without a count like what kind of countess would you be and like it seemed to me that she was very fair and that she like cared for her staff and so like that also felt like a moment where it's like her housekeeper felt confident to speak freely and so then to like not have her advice taken was also like weird yeah but I thought you were going to and I think this kind of touches on that speak to the projectiness of yeah. this book. Is that your, your weirdest, weirdest part? Not my weirdest part. What's your weirdest part? That they never just say people are black. <laughs> this is so weird <laughs> that they don't do that. It's so weird. It's just like, why? Dark skinned. Dusky. <laughs> like, don't use that word. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I like the idea that people in the Regency didn't have that like language of like, this is a black person. I am a white person. They're like, it's like this weird caginess about race that is like a point in the book right Mm -hmm. that you have to be implicit about race but it has explicit consequences yeah Yeah. but you don't just say you can't be a fellow in the science academy because you're black black. or just being like he is black yeah it's like here's a black scientist right and the book is like here's a dusky hued human from Barbados who's that science (laughs) science (laughs) it is it's so it's so weird yeah it's like euphemistic that was weird but I do want to talk about the project yes Let's talk about the project D-ness. 
So you brought this to my attention. Mm -hmm. This book is a project. What is the project? That you can have a sexy Regency romance with two ladies. I mean, there are many projects. and It's like a nesting doll of projects. No, I think you're exactly right that there can be a Regency romance between two women. But I think, right, the project of this is feminist. TM. You know what I mean? And so yeah. your point about the project being like, these are two women in love in the Regency era. Okay. So I've been thinking about this a mm-hmm. lot because there are all these scenes of like proving the status quo wrong. And right. Historical romances are always actually speaking to their current moment. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like, you know, we read Courtney Milan mm-hmm. and her historicals have a project. This book was like freighted, I would say, with its project. And I was like, but that's not any different from any of the others recently published that we've read. And so, okay, back in the day, romance was understood as an inherently feminist project because it is toiling in the pleasure of women for the sake of pleasure, Mm -hmm. female pleasure for the sake of pleasure. That has ceased to be like the realm of true fantasy Mm -hmm. is what I'm going to say. And by true fantasy, I mean the deeply personal, like sexual feeling seen in the way you want to be seen by another person kind of fantasy and has transitioned into this like value setting pedagogy of like, here's what it is to be a good woman. You like this heroine because she is a good woman. And you can be a good woman like her if the following steps are undertaken, right? If you choose to follow your own arrow, if you stand up to men, if you back up your friends and look at the revenge that you experience, like the pleasure of the HEA, right? There are two HEAs in this book. Mm -hmm. There's the one, the Oleron, who she's been translating, shows up and she's a black woman and a black woman who's then like, guess what? You're actually smarter than me. <laughs> Can't wait to work with you on my next, next volume. Book. Yeah. And she does it in front of everybody who was mean to her, Lucy mm-hmm. in the past about her translation. And then that woman gets invited into the society. And then Lucy gets invited to the society. And everyone gives her a fucking standing ovation. That's the first HEA. And then there's the second one where they decide that they can be married by starting a scholarship fund together. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I love the scholarship fund. I thought that was really cute. I thought maybe it would be cool if two people could live together without being bound financially. But like this was invested in an HEA that looked like marriage. All of them are. It's true. But that's so secondary to the actual HEA. Which was way more satisfying. Which is way more satisfying. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about suffragette scandal and Mm. the real HEA is like showing the bastards and get your newspaper printed. Then she also marries the guy who rubbed her down with a leather glove. You know what I mean? And it's just weird. Made metal flowers for her and planted them. Sorry, you're not going to get me on the suffragette scandal. No, I'm just pointing out, I'm not giving it a value statement. I'm just saying this is what's going on here. Mm -hmm. It's no longer about feeling seen and valued on a personal level. It's about success in a larger socio-cultural moment as far as like avenging your vagina. Mm. And I think that's really interesting. I think that's the direction it's going. We talked about when we were first doing our first Beverly Jenkins book about how there's so much pleasure gained from her telling off of the villains Mm -hmm. and that's as pleasurable as the sex scenes and I feel like other books are weighted much more heavily towards the telling off yeah I think that's really true and I think you're right that the satisfaction of the HEA is 
this nesting doll of effect because like not only does the telling off happen, but then Catherine also is going to get her embroidery sample published and she's going to become famous in her own right for her work and the work that she's been toiling in obscurity to do. And it's like the move between private and public. So mm-hmm. private pleasure then has to become public discourse. Yeah. And I think it's like a move away from like pleasure is personal. So the personal is political when you're a woman to just like the pleasure is political. Yeah. And sometimes it is. And sometimes it's not. The books that get put on a pedestal by people like The Ripped Bodice, which, by the way, the bookstore is called The Ripped Bodice. Mm -hmm. And the idea of like a bookstore with a feminist project being talking about like rape as a sexual pleasure, because that's what bodice ripping refers to, is really interesting to consider. But the fact that the historicals that get put on a pedestal by these very visible entities like them are always more political than they are personal. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on in our current moment. I totally understand, right? Because I am a woman in the world Mm -hmm. today. I'm a super leftist, bleeding heart woman in the world today. I understand why that's pleasurable. But there was something so punk rock about women like Kathleen Woodowis writing about orgasms, a thing that she clearly never had. I mean, like, this matters. This is a part of my story. You know, focusing on the personal and making that enough. You know what I mean? Like, it's enough that these two women are having sex and enjoying it. And that's enough of a pleasure. You don't have to also then get up on a pedestal and be like, now a black lady likes me. Or like, keep that pleasure orbiting the personal, right? Like, that public moment is really delicious to read. But there is so little adventure. There's actually very little tension in yeah. this book. And like, Woodowis is like, tension every two seconds. And she's yeah. like, now you're kidnapped. Now you're on a boat. Now you've escaped. Now we're in Egypt. And it's like, I think one of the things that has happened between the 1970s and our current moment <laughs> is a lot. But not the least of which is that I think romance itself as a genre and as material mode of income is that that there's just less room to play. Like there are fewer sex scenes in this book than in a widowist. And there are fewer moments of like anticipatory sexual like crackle yeah. Yeah. between our our two heroines. And in that way, it's like, but that's what we came here for. Yeah. It's always odd to me where it's like, and they, it's weird. why would you why take would you, that away? Why right. would you like lose that? And like, why not have a scene in a ballroom where they like stare at each other and like disrobe and like they're going to get caught behind the yeah. front. I'm like, there's so many ways to make a same sex relationship crackle and spark and like consume. Yeah. What a missed opportunity to be like, they fucked. They fell in love and everything worked out. Do you know what sucks? It sucks that lesbians don't have a down, dirty, sexy book, historical romance. Yeah. Like us heteros, we've got... So many. It could go to the moon and back 18 times on those books. Yeah. And then the one that gets like put on a pedestal is just like your entire relationship is political. Your entire identity is political. You have to do all of this work and all of this fighting and you can't just like get off together and love each other. And you also have to find a way to be married at the end of it like you can't just be together that's not fucking fair that's 
not fucking fair. Which is why Lady Kelmarsh was the more interesting story when like we show up to Lady Kelmarsh's house and she's built a memorial for her mom. And then Lady Catherine just then realizes like, oh, my mom was in a yeah same sex relationship. Like, where you been, Catherine? And I also hate that it's this moment where romance is now self-aware of mm-hmm. itself as a political animal and a place where pedagogy can exist. I appreciate that fact. You know, I think I don't super enjoy it when people who are creating content for pleasure mm-hmm. stop just telling a story mm-hmm. because the politic is all there. You don't have to force it. Right. Don't tell me that this book is just telling a story because you don't use the word black. <laughs> Right, that's that's a bridge. But too it far. matters. It does matter. But race matters in this book. It does. But never shall it be named. Right. Which is like the most white feminist horse shit. Like that's it, guys. That's it. It's weird the implicit versus the explicit. So we explicitly deal with the idea that white landed gentry ladies have had their spark snuffed out by their shitty husbands. Yeah. But we can't <laughs> say that a black man from Barbados is, is barred from being in the science academy because of his race. Well, we can't even say he's a black man from Barbados. Right. We have to say he's a dark-skinned man. And I wonder if like people in the Regency were just like, dark-skinned and like all of this colonization and like you want to talk about doing an injustice like whenever you do shit like that you undermine the entire historical framework that has led this black man to be in England when his father's a court musician and he's not allowed into the fucking society you know what I mean and that's also one of the moments where this book was just published but it's like and to be entirely historically accurate the term black wouldn't have appeared in this moment in the way that we are using it. But this is a moment where like this book is highly aware of itself. It's speaking to 2019. There's absolutely no reason to obfuscate in the way in like the Regency language itself. Black people were described as black people from the earliest moments of colonization. Right. They didn't say dark skin. They said black people. In the society that they're moving in, they wouldn't have used that term. Darwin used it. Right. But at the Science Academy, I'm not sure that he would have referred to that person as a black person. Uh, Darwin used it. And then the guy who was like, oh, no, no, it's fine that there are different races. We've just got a hierarchy here. Uh, And don't worry, whites are at the top. What was his fucking name? Anyways, he used the term black. It's been around. It was around at this time. Right. And it was used in this society and culturally it was used in scientific papers is what I, I'm saying. Right. I think they would have used a different term for him. And why? Like, w- why? Because of his potential biracialness. His potential biracial. Where's that? I'm just reading that because the text is obfuscating what he is actually other than. Oh, you're man. giving it credit. I see. Yeah. But I think <laughs> they would have, you know, in polite society in the same way, like it's one they of the use things- the N word in polite society. Right. That's the term that they would have been using or other terms like quadroon. Why can't the book say black? I I am of two minds. I think this... A, I 100% agree with you. This book should have used the term black. And like, this is like a book written in 2019. There's absolutely no reason not to. Especially when you make the move to talk about the explicit consequences of the implicit thing. The reason why I think, and this is total supposition on my part, the reason why I think that this author didn't want to is because she's like, in the Regency period in polite society, they wouldn't have used that term. But she would be wrong. I but not necessarily like in letters between polite people they wouldn't have used the term black they would have used other 
terms. I mean, they could have used other terms for sure. They could have used other terms. I'm not necessarily convinced that people didn't use the term black in polite society at this moment because of like the specific examples I can think of are scientific published papers that predate this book Mm -hmm. that use the term black like colloquially to describe people. But that's not a drawing room setting is like my instinct about why this author wouldn't have used that term. But you're not sure that people did not colloquially use the term black in conversation. It doesn't appear as much in the record. And like, that's one of the things, like one of the classes that I took about the African perspective of slavery, like one of the things that's really interesting is that the term black falls out of especially English record in a specific point, especially at the parliamentary level. And what did they use? Other words like They didn't use mulatto. Dark skinned. So you think the author, in lieu of using what would be considered a racial slur today, decided to say dark skinned instead of black. Black and was thinking black had fallen out of favor at this time, but I don't want to use the slurs. That would be my guess. That's, that's a very generous read. <laughs> I think, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. The reason why I want to give it this generous read is because there's this other part in the book where they're in like the Polynesian islands and there's this whole thing where like Catherine watches George and a couple of other people destroy a sacred site yeah. so that they can get a better look at the stars. Yeah. Like that's why I would say like this is trying to be as generous as possible in lieu of an imperial moment. So here's what I'm saying. Like it's not that the book's heart isn't in the right place. Right. It's just that the book doesn't understand fully, is not confident in asserting truths that don't revolve around our heroines. And I think that's it probably like, and I don't want to like overstate the case, Morgan, but it seems to me like that might be your issue in particular and our issue together where it's like Kathleen Woodowis, Johanna Lindsay and others, Julie Garwood speak with utter confidence. <laughs> like those are not shrinking yeah, from issues even in their day. But, but like, they're also not taking on issues. They're not like, here I go to solve the problem. <laughs> and uh, would you, um, so who helped you today, ma'am? Uh, the the guy with the short hair, I think he might have been. Uh, he was wearing a blue velvet. He was wearing a blue velvet. Um, oh, he's Mr. Frampton. Is it? Oh, the black guy. <laughs> It's like teetering on the like, I don't see color. I just see shades that are irrelevant to me, but somehow super relevant in the world in which I move. It's dumb. <laughs> it's dumb. Yeah, but it's that, right? Oh. Where it's like, what? what is the nicest thing that I can do? Or how can I say that my characters don't see color? But like they <laughs> share in the experience, like the share, but also is different than in the experience of suffering at the subjugation of societal and powerless like how do I put them on a level without like uh, (laughs) and that's what this book felt like it felt like that moment where you're like I'm trying to find the word and I can't it's like there is the word it's black it's black yep like that's what baffles me and it's so white feminism that this book is willing to take on this project of like they destroyed the shrine and I have always regretted that I didn't say anything was one of the worst things I've ever seen this woman is going to overturn the total ideals of the polite society of science just by her own state of being and being unapologetic about it and what is that state of being tanner than me (laughs) 
Uh, I think you're right, though. And I think like that's one of the things that's like genuinely frustrating, clearly, but also like just genuinely deflating. Like there's this whole thing where it's like, I think there is a lot of value and joy and pleasure in a scene where the bad guy is forced to look at his badness and like rethink himself and like do it publicly. Yeah, and it's like I get it. I get it. Yeah. It's like when Molly Ringwald shows up in the pink dress that she made and she's like, fuck. <laughs> you and I'm like yeah girl like the idea that like you can't deny me a place at the table because like I just added a whole new leaf and yeah. I think like that is pleasurable and yeah. that's why I was like genuinely excited because like it wasn't until at least three quarters of the way through the book where I'm like oh Orleans a woman and yeah. I was like I was genuinely pleased that it took me that long to figure yeah, it out yeah. and it was like a nice reveal and it like was. all of that was great and I think like into that space it's like just put your cards on the table like if this is your project like yeah lean all the way right everyone's like the project of feminism is political and the project of romance is feminine pleasure and therefore it is political and we've just got to like put it out there and then everyone's just like mumbling into their back of their hands Mm -hmm. that I find excruciating (laughs) excruciating (laughs) I just want to grab people you know be like say it say it call it by its name Call it by its name. And uh, because, you know, Kathleen Wood was, wasn't fighting for equality, nope. but she was saying like this woman coming is worthwhile and called it by its name. She Holocaust called it <laughs> Okay, she didn't do a great job because she wasn't super familiar with it. But she tried and she went full force and she wasn't embarrassed. That's the thing. It's this level of embarrassment about the pleasure or the fear of the pleasure that is inherently unfeminist. It's like, like demurmuring. Yeah, it's like you have to like be like, this is what I want. This is what I like. I'm going to do it unapologetically for it to actually be doing something. This week's sponsor of Womance is Audible. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and audio entertainment, including Audible Originals. Audible Originals are stories created exclusively for audio, including documentaries, exclusive audiobooks, and scripted shows that you can't hear anywhere else. Audible keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. You'll finish more stories when you listen with Audible and always be part of the conversation. With the convenient Audible app, you can listen anytime, anywhere, and on any device mobile alexa enabled bluetooth and more listen at the gym while you're shopping in the car while traveling <laughs> anytime you can't read you can listen with audible we need two hands free eh? <laughs> come on now. you know what i mean <laughs> audible members get more than ever before every month you can choose one audible regardless of price as well as two audible originals from a fresh selection members stay motivated and inspired with unlimited access to exclusive guided fitness and meditation programs I need some meditation in my life. We all do. I need some fitness in my life as well. Sign up for free updates from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post delivered daily to the app. Necessary info in these times, y'all. Audible members can easily exchange any title they don't love at any time. Members keep their library of listens forever. Even if they cancel. Aw, just like memories. (laughs) Start a 30-day trial and choose one audiobook and two Audible originals absolutely free. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial. Choose one audiobook and two Audible originals absolutely free. Visit audible.com slash woe or text woe to 
5-0-0-5-0-0. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com forward slash W-H-O-A or text W-H-O-A to 5-0-0-5-0-0. This week, we recommend Generous Fire. It's an earlier text by this week's author, S. Olivia Waite. This is a sexy little story clocking in at an hour and 40 minutes about a school arm <laughs> and a headmaster. I wonder how we got that title. A week? <laughs> 140 minutes is just a long roast in your oven. Pop in the potatoes, jump in the car to grandmother's house. And you're good to go. And you're good to go. So one more time, if you want to collect Generous Fire by Olivia Waite, go to audible.com forward slash woe or text woe to 500500. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash W-H-O-A. And Audible, hurry up and give Isabeau a job. Isabeau wants this so bad. She, she wants to be on the app. <laughs> Mwah. Mwah. I didn't realize I was going to get so worked up. I get it. I really anticipated this book. I heard all the buzz. I was really excited to read it. I went ahead and bought it. And I was like, I want to support stories like this. I want to support authors who are writing stories like this. And then it's like, oh, oh, great. (laughs) And I think like that's one of my real frustrations right now, especially as like you and I move and weave between the 70s, 80s and 90s and like the 2019 books. And like, I like that I have such easy access to the archive where it's like, you can always read these books in relation to the things that came before. And I like, I find this project really worthwhile. Womance. Um, (laughs) But one of the things that's like been really hard for me, like going from a casual lover of the genre to a person who now has not encyclopedic, but like much more expertise than I did before. Just like by virtue of thinking about it and reading it and like seeing what other people do constantly. Constantly. And like the idea that like finding the patterns and yeah, and that like the patterns stay, they have to, that's how it works. But like that I can continually be surprised by an older book. And like, that's the other thing. Like, honestly, other than Orlean, I wasn't surprised yeah. by anything in this I mean, book. I wasn't excited or like the whole point of in the book and I think we should get to sexiest part actually this is a good way to access normally my sexiest part is whenever the desire is like building and that literally gets shortened to like two weeks may seem like a long time whenever you're horny for somebody but it flew by for these two so we're not gonna talk about it (laughs) it's kind of sucky um so it's not particularly for me if you enjoy like not that I enjoy a slow burn just that I enjoy that part of it it helps me enjoy the rest of it as like a payoff and we got a slow burn to the reveal that Oleorn was a woman who thinks Lucy is brilliant right we got a slow burn to that so that pleasure was like tingles but you know you lose some of the tingles if you don't have that build up having said that sexiest part was for me Mm -hmm. the closest thing we got to that Catherine decides that she's going to try to seduce Lucy and so she makes her a wrap that is carefully embroidered right it's It's beautiful it's beautiful a moment when Catherine watches Lucy put the wrap on and she thinks about her own fingers 
touching mm-hmm. the crook of her elbow. Whenever books talk about non-erogenous places erogenously, because I love that shit, you know, mm-hmm. a knee, a calf, the inside of an elbow. I find that very erotic and interesting and very sexy. Mm-hmm. So she's thinking about her own hands touching the places where the wrap is touching and that kind of mediated, stilted kind of giddiness is uh, very sexy. And there were also some good sex scenes. I like their sex scene in Lime when they're having vacation sex. Mm-hmm. That's great. What was your sexiest part? So the shawl was very sexy to me as well. It also just sounded like astoundingly beautiful. But mine is also very similar. It's like the other shade of desire, which is jealousy, where Pris is also an accomplished seamstress and she's embroidered because Lucy's still in mourning. So she's in all of these muted colors, gray, lavender. And to give some of her frocks a little bit of pop, Pris, before their erstwhile breakup, had embroidered these beautiful vines all the way up the bodice. And there's this moment where they're at dinner and Catherine's like, I hate Priscilla and her beautiful fucking stitches crawling up her bodice. And like, there's this moment where she's like staring at Lucy's breasts because like that's where the vines end. And she's like, I wish that those were my stitches. Yeah. That kind of interesting. Well, also just like wanting the person you like to like the things you do. Yeah. And being jealous that they like the things other people do. Yeah. I personally hate it when my man listens to other podcasts. (laughs) Ditto, especially like when John laughs really hard at other podcasts. I'm like, do you laugh that hard at my podcast? You better. Listen to it right now in front of me. (laughs) Laugh. Laugh. (laughs) I will will also want to point out that the book actually has a very deft hand at addressing Catherine's identity as bisexual. She never names it, but just like the fact that she acknowledges that she's been sexually attracted to women as she has been for men. And the book doesn't complicate that. The (laughs) book just kind of lets that happen and is speaking the truth and lets the pleasure be and talks about, you know, she had a complicated relationship with a man that sounds a little BDSM-y or probably like by our terms, like dudes are just out there choking people now in their first sexual encounter. Isabeau! Yeah, they're like you like it rough. (laughs) I like it being spanked a little bit and tossed around that's not choking. And suddenly like hair is getting yanked (laughs) and they're like wrapping an arm around your neck and they're like, I said a little bit Not asking Yeah, like what the fuck? When did the Game of Thrones. <laughs> Probably. Maybe, I don't know. When did we decide that asking someone if they like it rough was permission for all this shit? Gradations. Nuance, friends. Oh, God. Nuance. <laughs> but anyways, like I thought like the bisexuality was a great example of like mm-hmm. something existing confidently, assuredly, and just by virtue of it being confident and assured and for the sake of pure pleasure, achieving a really beautiful political project on its own Yep, was her bisexuality. All right. Anything else? No, that's all of it. Let that loosen your stays. Never your principles. Mwah! Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out 
out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.